Hello, 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 and welcome back to the More Money Podcast. This is episode 304, and I'm your host, Jessica Morehouse. Welcome back to the show for this special bonus episode. Very excited. We we really go into a, a very interesting topic just about thinking kind of outside the box and just thinking of investing in a different way and specifically investing in different products than maybe your typical index fund like I do harp on a lot on this show. So for this episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Michael Kovacs. He's the president and CEO uh, of Harvest Portfolios Group, Inc., uh, which he founded in 2009. I know, an interesting year. We do talk about that in the show because I'm curious, like, wow, 2009 was a bit of a a rough year. What uh, inspired you to start your own investment company? Um, So he has been a veteran in the industry for 35 years. 35 years. Um, And since 1991, he has held senior management positions with four major companies in the investment field. Uh, And not only that, though, before, you know, kind of as he started out, he did begin his career as an investment advisor and for seven years managed the money for individual investors. So he has an interesting perspective of working with, you know, clients one on one, and then also then being on the other side of things more in the kind of product development side of things. Thing. So we have a really great uh, conversation. Now, since I'm sure after this episode, you're going to want to kind of take a look at some of the, because uh, we, we do deep dive and t- talk about some specific ETFs that Harvest uh, provides that I found really interesting that really focus on just investing in clean energy companies or blockchain companies or space innovation companies, you know, very kind of uh, niche or focused uh, ETF. So if you want to check out those for yourself, learn more, you can check them out at harvestetfs.com. Of course, you can also follow a Harvest ETF on Twitter and Instagram at Harvest ETFs. And uh, also make sure to check out their podcast. They have a podcast as well uh, called Harvest Talks Podcast. You can find that at harvestportfolios.com slash podcast. But honestly, on their website, there are so many actually great resources. Sometimes I feel like we forget that these, you know, fund companies actually offer some great free resources that have really great research attached to them. So make sure to, again, check them out at harvestportfolios.com. But also I should mention, I'm going to include all of these links. So it's all in one place, all the kind of key things that you're going to definitely want to check out in the show notes for this episode. Just go to jessicamorehouse.com slash 304. And FYI, if you're ever looking for the show notes, that is like, you know, basically information and links and, and, and things that you want to check out after you listen to an episode on my website, it's always jessicamorehouse.com slash the number of the episode. Or you can find all the show notes at jessicamorehouse.com slash podcast. Okay, without further ado, let's get to that interview with Michael. Welcome, Michael, to the More Money Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Jessica. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So very excited to have you on the show to talk, um, you know, for this full episode about ETFs, um, something I love to talk about and talk about endlessly with anyone who wants to talk to me about investing. Um, You really have been in the investment industry for a very long time, not calling you old, calling you very experienced and an expert in your field. And I've obviously seen such a transformation with ETFs over all of these years. It's And even for me, just seeing ETFs evolve over the past 10 years has been very interesting. So I want to kind of, uh, and also, you know, not to... Um, also say, you know, I find it very interesting, too, that you founded a Harvest Portfolios Group in 2009, which is a very interesting mm-hmm. time to start <laughs> a company like that. So um, let's start with kind of your, your background. You've been in the industry for a very long time. What got you into the world of investing? 
Well, I started in 1985 as a stockbroker. And, mm. and the reason why I went that route is uh, I was very interested in stocks from sort of my teen years. Really? Uh, and that sort of led me into the stock market. And it was very different in those days. You were a full service broker. You worked for one of the seven or eight firms before the, even the bank stepped in and bought all of those firms up. So, <clears throat> excuse me, it was a very different time. Um, but uh, I sort of, without getting into all the details, trans over time, trans and moved into um, uh, management, uh, sales management. Uh, then uh, one day, I think it was 1990, I was reading the paper and uh, was surprised at how the U.S. mutual fund industry had hit a trillion dollars. And I mean, that just seemed like an unbelievable amount of money. Uh, and the Canadian industry at that time was about 40 billion, so quite a bit smaller. And I really wanted to sort of move to that side of the industry and start getting involved with it. So I did, and uh, I went to a company called Guardian Capital at the time. They had a small mutual fund company and sort of got a lot of experience, really enjoyed the uh, investment management side of it, uh, the sales and marketing side of it, and uh, felt I had a knack and ideas that I could bring to the market at some point in the future. But when you're working and things are going really well, you don't really uh, leave your job. Uh, so to make a long story short, 2009 came around, uh, the market got crushed. Uh, I found myself out of work and I thought, well, this is the time to start a business, uh, to start a company. And we were at, you know, in the sort of smoking embers of the financial crisis. Uh, I was advised not to set up a company. It was suicide, <laughs> one person said to me. But I thought, well, you know, uh, no bad track records, no good track records. Just Let's just start building a track record at this point. And uh, that's when we started Harvest and uh, founded the company at that time and got our first little fund launched, uh, our banks and buildings fund, and the rest is history. Just built it up, and, and in 2016, we uh, started the ETF business, and now we're a $2 billion company. So it's wow. it's been so, fantastic. I guess you I showed them. A lot of years <laughs> in between, but uh, it did, uh, you know, it's been a lot of work, but, you know, we're yeah. now we're starting to really see the, uh, the growth and the success of our philosophy. Yeah, yeah, it's I, I can understand why some people might be like, oh, this may not be the best time to start this kind of company. But I mean, maybe you just had the foresight because you you've seen, you know, some uh, you know crashes and corrections uh, mm -hmm. in your career. And you're like, well, I mean, it's there's only up from here. hopefully. <laughs> so that's well, kind of one way to think about it. And, and you're right. And, and luckily, uh, I caught on to uh, Warren Buffett very early in my career, started following him. Uh, reading a lot about what he was doing and how did this guy become a billionaire as an investor as opposed to running a company or building a, a Microsoft or something like that. And, um, you know, it's that sort of that philosophy. I realized if you own quality and stay with it over the long term, you'll ride through the good times and the bad times because they will come. We've had great markets recently. At some point, the market will get hit again, uh, whether it's next year or two years from now, it'll happen. And you sort of have to take that into scope when looking out over the long term. So in starting Harvest, I knew at some point markets would come back. So let's focus on quality and growth and, and build the company that way. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, since we did just um, experience that last spring, it almost feels like 10 years mm -hmm. ago. It was only like a year ago. <laughs> what was your experience like, you know, since you started in 2009 and here we got our, you know, very kind of similar feelings of panic 
pandemic and the market and everyone just saying doom and gloom and comparing it, of course, to the you know Great Depression and all that kind of stuff. What mm-hmm. uh, was your reaction to what happened in March 2020? Well, it's, it's always scary when these things happen because you don't know what direction it's going to go in, especially with a, with a pandemic. We, you know, we're dealing with something completely new. Uh, we didn't know how badly it was going to affect, obviously, human life, uh, the world as we knew it, the economy. Um, and as we sort of got four or five months into it, we realized, you know, things are coming back. Uh, it's unbelievable how quickly uh, the medical uh, pharmaceutical business jumped to the um, uh, to command, if you will, to start developing vaccines and getting them out. It's the fastest vaccines I've ever got out in the history uh, of the human race. So, um, you know, that's when things started to come back and you realize we will get through this eventually. It just how long it takes, how bad it gets, we don't know. But um, again, it was one of these scenarios that you just stick with it and and uh, stick with quality and stick with good companies. So yeah. it was scary, but it did come back. It right? did. Thank goodness yeah. for that. Because, yeah, I, I wasn't sure what was going to. I mean, as someone who, you know, I'm a millennial, I graduated university in 2009. And so that was mm-hmm. a big part of my adult, you know, uh, entry point into uh, adulthood of, you know, it was just like everyone losing their retirement funds is what it seemed like. You're like, oh, is this what investing is like? I don't think so. This is scary. Yeah. Um, it was very reminiscent, but also because now I have that experience and also so much more knowledge compared to when I was uh, in my 20s. Yeah, like you, I'm like, okay, what I've learned and also my experience is to just stay in the market. Just don't react. Don't mm-hmm. don't let your emotions run rampant because that never helps. Um, and then just kind of do nothing out of the ordinary. Yeah. And, uh, and I think uh, the people that did that are glad that they did that. And a lot of people that maybe this was the first time they've experienced something like that. And maybe if they, they cashed out or, or freaked out, they mm-hmm. may be not, uh, you know, maybe wishing they made a, a bit of a different difference. But I think that's why it's so important. And I, I, it's you know, hard just, to do. It's hard to do. It is hard the hardest stick, thing in the world in the to do. Nothing, trees, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah. When you're in the middle of the trees, it's hard to see the forest, as they say. it, And it's, yeah. it's, it's true. I mean, even myself, I said I started in 85. I was only two years into the business when the crash of 87 came. And Ooh. that just smoked everything. And, yeah. you know, I was sort of sitting back like, oh, what do I do now? Right? Yeah. So it's sort of you learn these lessons as an investor. And it always goes back to own quality, own great companies that you feel comfortable with. And you'll do fine. You're going to have to ride out the volatility, but you'll do fine over time. So I want to kind of yeah, dig in um, to a little bit about a harvest specifically, um, just because, sure. you know, uh, I think some people may be used to hearing about like some of the, the big uh, ETF mutual fund providers. Harvest is, um, you know, I mean, it's still... <laughs> still a big company with that evaluation or how many uh, uh, how much assets you have under management but um, uh, yeah tell me a little bit about uh, harvest and how is it I guess different than some of the other kind of providers in Canada I know you have some mutual funds and now really mm-hmm. ETF seems to be your kind of biggest product offering but what is kind of I guess when you were starting the company what was your your goal your kind of philosophy and, and how you want to kind of um, be a bit different than what was already out there Right. Well, um, going back to when I was talking about Buffett, when I when I launched Harvest, I really wanted to focus on uh, equity products and owning equities for the long term. And there's a number of different uh, types of investment products out there and, and different categories uh, like fixed income and bonds and so on. But I really believed that the way to create wealth over the long term is by owning great companies. And if you think about who are the wealthy people today, uh, where is wealth being created? 
And well, and a lot of that's here in North America, but Europe and Asia, tremendous amount of beans is being created. It's, and it's not being created by uh, government handouts. It's being created by business people or entrepreneurs going out there and developing a concept and building it over time. So why not put together portfolios in sectors that we see as long that have long-term growth trends to them and then really try to select what we feel are the best companies and hold on to them for the long term. So in starting Harvest, um, you know, our very first fund was the banks and buildings uh, is what we call it. It's, it's a mutual fund now. It's very small. But the idea was you had the Canadian banking system got hit very hard uh, after the financial crisis in 2009, but it actually wasn't damaged at all compared to what had happened in the United States. Yeah. Yet mm-hmm. You could get yields on Bank of Montreal of 9%, 10% mm-hmm. in dividends. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So. I couldn't get it there fast enough uh, to get a fund launched uh, because I could see this huge opportunity. And by the time we actually got it launched, I think yields were down to about 5%. So things did change, but that fund's had, a, I think, a 9% compounded annual rate of return over 10, 11 years now. And the idea is that's one idea, but all of our ideas we were launching were similar. Let's choose great industries. Let's choose the top companies. Let's position ourselves in them so that we're not trading them, but we're staying with them over the long term. And we're fine-tuned. We'll buy and sell a little bit. But over the long term, let's just try to build that portfolio of all these different funds that are following that same philosophy. And that's really what we did as sort of closed-end structured products until 2016 when we launched the ETF company. And then we transferred a lot of those concepts into ETFs and then built it from that point. So it's it's the same underlying philosophy, Jessica. It's just... Let's apply it to different areas, uh, whether that's clean energy, uh, whether that's uh, uh, healthcare, whether that's technology. Let's focus on the same philosophy, but apply it to different parts of the market. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to kind of dig in because I'm kind of curious, and I think most people would be curious too, um, from the perspective of one of these ETF uh, providers. How do you decide what companies to put into, say, a clean energy ETF? Or you mentioned also you have a healthcare one. There's also like mm-hmm. a blockchain and space. You have a lot of different ETFs. How do you decide uh, what to put in there when you're in the development stage of an ETF? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. So, um, once you've sort of chosen the sector or the or the the industry that you want to be into, then you start going through sort of a filtration process where you look at the universe of companies out there and you say, well, we only want to be, say, in the healthcare situation. We only want to be in the largest, most prominent global healthcare companies. So we'll screen um, maybe from 3,000 companies down to 100, 150. And at that point in time, we start really looking at, well, where are the areas of the healthcare sector that we want to be in, whether it's uh, big pharma, uh, big biotech, uh, medical equipment. We want to choose the sectors, the subsectors, if it will. And then what are the top companies there? Then we start looking at the history of the company, the financial metrics, their earnings, their dividend payments. The management team is very important, their track record of success. And you really filter it down to your 20 from that in the case of the healthcare fund. And then we'll go back and continue to sort of revisit it every quarter and take a look over all those companies again and decide, should that one go out now? Should this, should, is there a new one that should come in? Did one get bought out? Should we replace it? And that's your sort of ongoing management of that portfolio. But once you've got that concept set, it's really a matter, matter, matter of managing it and monitoring it uh, going forward. So that would be the same for clean energy. That would be the same for um, 
I mentioned blockchain, that's a little bit different because that's a very fast emerging area. Uh, but technology the same, uh, even um, uh, what we have, we have a brand leaders file, which is all sort of large cap global brands. So same concept over and over, just different parts of the market. Mm, interesting. Um, so, you know, since I talk a lot on this podcast about, you know, kind of the the investment strategy that I participate in, you know, index investing, mm-hmm. passive investing. Um, yes. So, you know, and I think in general, it's a great strategy for most investors. How would if someone's looking at some of your kind of more specific uh, kind of niche um, uh, ETFs like, you know, the blockchain or space innovation or mm-hmm. clean energy or, or what have you? How can you still be an index investor and have that part of your portfolio? Or or if not, if someone is trying to figure out what kind of portfolio they want for, say, they, their retirement goal, how would they integrate some of these e- ETFs into their portfolio? Well, in the case of, say, uh, blockchain uh, or even um, our space innovation, which is Orbit, those are a little more uh, passive index type products. And I think when you're looking at those different types of funds, you really have to be saying, this is the growth component of my portfolio. So I'm I'm buying this component to put away, it may only be 2%, but I'm buying that to position in blockchain because I see that as a real dis- is disruptive, great growth area in the technology business for the next 10, 20 years. So here's my way to position there. Or uh, clean energy, the same idea. If you really agree and believe that this is the way the world's going, which I think it is, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's undeniable. Yeah. Um, why not own a portfolio that's cutting across uh, 50 great businesses that are focusing on clean energy and stay with that as they grow and develop themselves and, and bring more to uh, the clean energy market, if you will, uh, or, or Orbit for that matter, or Space Innovation. This is a sort of an odd, unique area. It's a tiny little fund, but we love what we see happening there from the standpoint of not only just commercial space travel, but the way private enterprises stepped into that area and is actually assisting governments in, in making them more efficient and saving them billions while making billions themselves as or organizations. Um, why not own a position there and stay with that? So those are really growth, smaller specialty areas. And then our other products like, um, like healthcare we talked about, we have an active option strategy on that. So the idea there is to generate income um, over the long term, and in that case, it's uh, an eight percent yield on that fund. So, if you're an older investor and you're uh, you're looking to supplement your income uh, in this low interest rate environment, there's a great way to own a great sector, a growing sector, allows you to grow your capital while drawing out a great income. So, at the end of the day, everything's boiling down to that same: Do we believe in the long term growth of markets and where these particular areas are going? Yes, we do. Okay, so let's position there, whether it's for income or whether it's just for pure growth. Mm -hmm. So really figuring out first what you need, whether it's growth or income. So, you know, I mean, that's usually what I'm always harping on about. It's like when it comes to investing, you always got to start with, well, what is your goal? And then kind of move, you know, um, uh, from there and kind of figure out what makes sense. You you mentioned, uh, and I kind of want to dig into this because I know this is um, kind of uh, you know a bit different again because I talk mainly about like index funds and then boring stuff like that. But you mentioned mm-hmm. you do have um, some funds that use uh, a, a covered call options as a strategy mm-hmm. to produce growth and income. A lot of buzzwords there. Can you kind of break that down a little bit so people can understand what does that mean? How does that work? And, and why would you use that as a strategy in a, inside an ETF? Okay, uh, well, there's there's very few of them in Canada. Uh, I mean, we we have them. BMO has them. I think CI has them. I think we're the third largest provider 
of these types of products in Canada. And we've become quite good at, at managing that type of a portfolio. So your underlying basis is to grow capital, uh, which is why we'll use healthcare again, uh, since we've been talking about it. We'll want to allocate capital to large cap US companies and global companies in the healthcare space. We don't have a lot of them here in Canada, so we look globally for those companies. So once we're positioned for that growth, then we're going to take a portion of that portfolio, about between 20 and 30%, and we'll sell calls, or under the term is write calls, uh, on a portion of that portfolio, which will generate income because we'll collect the premiums or the income mm-hmm. from selling those, those positions while at the same time maintain 70, 80% of the portfolio, long exposure, if you will, to the market. Mm-hmm. So that way we still have that growth component, but we're actually siphoning off a bit of the growth short term to generate that income. And luckily that income is, uh, is, is treated as capital gains. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a better tax treatment. If it's not an RSP or a RIF, yeah. uh, it's a better way to sort of collect that income. At least you're paying capital gains as opposed to uh, pure interest income. So and the, the option strategy itself, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's simple, but at the same time, it's fairly complex because there's a variety of different options. They have different prices on them. They have different time periods on them. Uh, they trade at different values. And we have a, gr- a group of guys here that just spend all their time focusing on those options and trying to write, in some cases, 110, 120 contracts a month on a single fund to generate that income. So if our yield target is, say, 8% annually, they'll look at the uh, fund that month, they'll say, how much do we have to write on top of the dividends that we're collecting to meet that income requirement? And that way we can keep the minimum amount of option writing going while the maximum amount of market exposure so it's sort of a balance, if you will, uh, to generate that income and get some growth. Have I confused everything even more? <laughs> no, no, it makes sense. But yeah, a yeah. lot to think about. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, you know, the, the strategies, like I said, conceptually are simple. But when you sort of dig into the, the nitty gritty, there's a lot of moving mm-hmm. parts there and uh, a lot of work to be done. As we say, a lot of brain damage uh, <laughs> that gets done every month to, uh, to run these portfolios. But the results have been fantastic. Interesting. Uh, another thing I want to talk about that I was uh, excited to talk to you about was your clean energy ETF, like you kind of mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I personally believe this is the future and needs to be the future, right? I mean, as, as time goes on, yeah. I feel like um, certainly the pandemic has, has shown how important we need to pay attention to um, the world that we live in and, and not just talk, but actually do. And I've been talking about this for a while just I mean I'd say in the the past five years I've been you know talking about responsible investing or being um, really focused on your personal values when you um, Mm -hmm. invest and and being you know conscious of what companies that you're actually lending your money to because ultimately what it is is you are promoting that company and and saying that yes this is something that I'm putting my money towards and um, you know honestly I'd say like yeah six or seven years ago it was very difficult to be able Mm -hmm. to invest in any kind of thing like that you you just didn't have the options now there's a lot more um, products out there where you know it gets really specific um, but even in the kind of responsible investing space with all the different ETFs and portfolios available, you know, sometimes you'll find a, a company and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. well, everything was good except for that one company that I don't like that's in that fund. So yeah. I'm curious, how did you um, develop that clean energy ETF? What was kind of the strategy? How did you kind of use some of the, the ESG guidelines to develop it? 
Yeah, well, in, in, the, in this strategy, it's definitely following the E, uh, which is mm -hmm. the environmental side more than anything. Um, if I can step back, ESG, and we've been reading more about it, it's, it's more complex than people think because there's no sort of standard guidelines. Different uh, investment managers have their own way of approaching ESG, and not one's right or one's wrong. Uh, but it's not consistent. And some companies um, sell carb or buy carbon credits to offset. And there's sort of arguments about that, if, whether that's the right thing to do or not. In setting up the clean energy fund, we thought, well, we want to focus on one part of the industry uh, that we see as a, has great growth initiatives behind it. Governments behind it. Corporations are behind it. So let's focus on a part of the sector where the specific focus in this case is the environment. So that's wind power, solar power, hydro, uh, biomass, all of these areas that are growing and developing and they're costly, but as time goes on, the costs drop and the efficiencies get better. So that's, that's what we're really trying to focus on for the long term uh, with this fund. So it's not an income fund. It doesn't generate monthly income like our other funds. It's really more focused on the growth component of uh, the clean energy sector. But we just see that as a huge growth area to the future, even looking at three, I think it was reading yesterday, 340 odd thousand windmills now exist out there. And there's a lot of work uh, and effort that goes into putting up a windmill, right from the manufacturing, the plastics, the transportation. And I get those critics that say, well, you're burning so much energy to do that. But once they're up and running, the efficiencies from the power they're generating over the long term are fantastic. So. You got a million of these things up eventually. That's going to be generating, you know, millions of gigawatts of power, uh, and, and and you know, keeping cities lit up and, and much more efficient, much cleaner. So it's a process, but we, like you're saying, we believe it has to happen. It is happening, and now the political will is behind it with the Paris Accord, with mm -hmm. the U.S. sort of getting back into the yeah. Paris Accord since Biden's come back in, and uh, or is back in. Uh, and uh, we just see that as even more sort of wins in the sales, if you will, uh, that are going to keep pushing the clean energy markets forward. So we want to be invested in there and we want to, um, as opposed to saying, trying to find the right balance of ESG, we're saying, well, we're just going to focus on E here and what are the best companies to own and which companies are, are sort of making the most progress in the clean energy space. And that's even from, um, there's, there's companies that manufacture uh, devices that will actually turn solar panels mm. uh, so they capture more sun. There's all kinds of, once you start to dig into this thing, yeah. it's, it, there's all kinds of really interesting ideas that are going on out there. That's cool. Do you have any plans, you know, since you, it, that fund really focuses on the E, any uh, plans to develop ETFs that fo focus more on the S and the G, the societal or the governance uh, aspects? Well, we're, we're looking at how can we sort of have a standardized set of rules that sort of bring in the S and the G and the E as well uh, as a sort of a top-down measure. And uh, I think what we'd like to see is more, oh, I, I hate saying the regulator, but we need to see some sort of standardized body to say, this is what, these are the type of rules that we're looking at. These are the type of things co companies should be going by, individuals should be going by. How do we incorporate that into our overall process? Uh, we did have a, uh, an ESG bond fund. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't very successful and we decided to pull it, but we were working with a company at that time that was providing a lot of guidelines as to how do you monitor ESG. And that's when we realized, as you peel back the onion, 
there's more and more layers of this, uh, it's more and more difficult to sort of break down what should be the standard guidelines that we're looking at. And one example is you may have a, a company that's, um, say, has female board members, mm -hmm. so therefore they're getting points for that, but at the same time they're dumping a fluid into a river. Yeah. So, you know, how do you sort of morally look at that and say, well, this is an ESG rating of X, so therefore let's put it in the portfolio. So uh, these are some of the questions that we're looking at right now. But the idea is, Jessica, we want to get more into that space. And we think it's the future. And that's yeah. where it's going. And we want to participate not only with individual funds like the Green Fund, mm -hmm. Clean Energy Fund, but with an overall ESG sort of um, top-down rating. Yeah, I mean, so we're not looking to green it's not a niche, you know, it should be every company should be following these guidelines, but I think it'll be a long time until we see all of that. Well, but, when it comes to know. it, the corporations have to be following in their daily management practices. Mm -hmm. Individuals, we have to be following it, too, and how we practice things. It's really, it boils all down to all of us sort of mm -hmm. following these guidelines. And as investment managers, okay, we have to set up our criteria where we can sort of comfortably invest in companies that everyone's sort of participating in and doing this right thing, if you will. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So kind of the last question I have for you, just because you, I mean, you, you were around when the first ETF was launched, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and it has been such an interesting uh, I mean, evolution since um, that first ETF was launched to now. I mean, now you see so many different types of ETFs, mm -hmm. you know, like the launch of the Bitcoin ETFs in Canada wasn't yeah. it was just a few months ago. And now the U.S. is launching things like that. I'm, I'm so curious what your kind of you know, feelings or, or perspective is seeing the evolution of the ETF, but also what are your some of your predictions or thoughts about where we you know, may see the evolution continue in the future? Well, uh, you're right. ETFs really started as index products. And, and it mm -hmm. was, if anything, it was a, an S&P uh, 500 or an S&P 100 or a TSX 60. They were really sort of pieces of the market that were being um, indexed together and a little fee being charged and put on the market. So a lot of portfolio managers at the time like, or advisors would simply position, oh, I want to have a position in the S&P, so I want to buy that, that ETF. Um, what that did actually, it sort of worked against the ETF industry for a while because a lot of people thought, well, I don't want to buy an index, I'm going to do my own stock picking. And it, it took a long time for it to sort of develop because it went from sort of really small to sort of token off, taken off in the last 10 years. Now you've got, uh, even when we launched our ETF company, which was, uh, it'll be five years ago, um, a lot of our advisors and people we'd go and talk to say, well, I don't want to buy an index. It's like, well, we're not an index. I mean, look at what we're doing here. Uh, this is active. This is income. This is an option strategy. And I think advisors and individuals had to get their head around the idea that, you know, these are really diverse investment products uh, that cover any everything from a, a 10 basis point index to uh, a 70 or 80 basis point uh, option writing strategy. So, I think it's actually become a, a really interesting industry and I think it'll continue to develop with things like Bitcoin ETFs, more ESG ETFs, mm -hmm. more option writing ETFs. Um, it, if anything, it'll probably continue to grow like the mutual fund industry did yeah. for so many years until it starts to not grow and consolidate, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but that might be a few years away. I'm so curious. I think it'll continue to innovate and it will continue to grow with different types of products mm -hmm. uh, as we go forward. 
I'm curious now too, since, you know, yeah, back in the eighties, not like mutual funds mm -hmm. were the thing. And even when I first started, um, you know, investing in my twenties, a decade ago, mutual, like that mutual funds were the thing. I didn't even know ETFs existed. They were not popular mm -hmm. at all, at least to the mainstream. Um, do yeah. you see just the mutual fund, uh, industry kind of being maybe usurped by the ETF industry? Do you think there's still a place for the mutual fund, uh, mutual funds, or do you think mm, they're just not as, I don't know. I, I, in my view, I'm like, mm -hmm. I've just basically talked about ETS. I don't know if I see personally a place for mutual funds anymore, but I could just be biased because I, I like what I like. Well, it's, it's a, in Canada, it's a $2 trillion industry, the mutual mm -hmm. fund business. And in the United States, I think I was reading, I think it was 21 and a half trillion. So these are huge industries uh, that were built over decades. Um, I think they'll be relevant for a long time. I don't think they're going away, uh, but I think as your generation gets older, they say, well, I'm going to move more to market traded, uh, lower priced, more flexible options. I think the, the mutual fund business is changing. Their commission structures have changed. They're, they are starting to bring down more and more of their fee structures. I think they have to change because it's, you know, they've got so much in assets, but I, I don't think it's going away. Let me just put it that way. I think new, I think the Indian ETF industry will continue to grow faster in the mutual fund industry. I don't see mutual funds as really a growth industry anymore. It was for a few decades, but now the, the industries of def the ETS have definitely uh, taken over and are growing at a much faster pace. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be uh, interesting to see what happens. It's, yeah. it's even interesting just, yeah, me having the perspective from, you know, when I first started, which was around, like I started learning about this stuff around 2009, 2010 to now being in mm -hmm. 2021, just how much just the, how much the investing industry uh, in and of itself has changed. I mean, you know, now you can, it's so much more accessible to be like a DIY investor to build your own portfolio. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, it was very difficult to figure out how on earth to actually do that. So I'm interested oh, to see yes. what's, what's going to happen. What are your kind of thoughts? Well, you're, well, you're absolutely right. The interesting thing is, is when, I, when I started in the business, people didn't even want to buy mutual funds. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the mutual funds got really popular late 80s going into the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I think the industry is so much better today than it mm -hmm. was when I started because um, you had to go, in my case, uh, work for a brokerage, one of the main brokerage firms. You were charging in to get in and to get out of transactions. Uh, it was very costly. You need a lot of money to sort of work at it. And now uh, you could go to organizations, start with $100 a month, start building it up, uh, have little to no fee structures. Um, and I, I just think for the individual, there's way more education because of technology. Yeah. Uh, there's better pricing, better entry points. I just think it's a much better industry. And it, uh, I hope it continues to grow in, yeah. in this way that it has because um, it's certainly, I think, more beneficial for society. Yeah, it should. And people have to take care of their finances and, and yeah. they have to plan for the future. Mm -hmm. And it's like we need to make that more, you know, accessible and just simple. I mean, I think that's the biggest barrier that I hear from people is, uh, I mean, not as much anymore. But yeah, definitely, again, you know, going back like a decade it, it was difficult. Like if you want to buy mm -hmm. like an index fund, I'm like, how do you even do that? And there's like, yeah. well, there's like two different ways. Like it's, it was very difficult. And now it's like, oh, well, you can open up this account with a robo advisor or you can open up a discount brokerage yeah. and just start doing it today. Whereas, yeah. you know, it before you had to like set up a meeting with someone and have a call, you know, all these kinds of things. So 
Exactly. Go into big, intimidating offices mm-hmm. and sit down and, and go through it all. I, I remember I opened my first account when I was 19, and I went down to this office on Bay Street, and I had no idea what I was doing, and I was just looking at their research reports, and they were charging me all kinds of fees to put to invest very little money at the time. Uh, but, you know, it's as I said, I think it's a much better industry today, and there's far more options, and I have... Uh, kids in their 20s now and and I can't believe the stuff they're doing what they can access and I think it's I think it's wonderful yeah well I'm sure they get a lot of great advice from me <laughs> it must be nice to have you as a I someone in the advice. background to kind of <laughs> hey have you thought about this <laughs> they don't always listen to me but no. I, oh. <laughs> I do my best <laughs> well it's been such a pleasure having you on the show um and yeah, very. Uh, yeah, hopefully this encourages more people to you know take that opportunity to to learn something that they didn't learn. And I think kind of just to end, uh, kind of what we're touching on at the end is because it is so much more accessible to start investing. Then there really isn't much of an excuse, and not just like to start investing, but also to learn what you don't know. Uh, again, mm-hmm. there was like a handful of books, but nothing online that you can really learn uh, a decade ago. And now there's, I mean, there's this podcast, and there's so many resources. So there's no excuse not to get started right away because as we both know the sooner you start i mean you start when you were 19 i wish i started when i was 19 if i can go back in time i would start investing earlier and so the importance of starting yeah. as soon as po- possible is so so important it, it, it absolutely is and, and i'd like to say to your, your listeners um especially if you're young and starting out stick with equities mm-hmm. for the long term because um you know bonds will move up and down with interest rates and, and markets will go up and down as well for all kinds of reasons uh, and there'll be more crises in the future whatever they may be mm-hmm. but stick with quality and stick for the long term and get yes. that compound growth happening mm-hmm. defer taxes as long as you can because taxes you know hurt mm-hmm. wealth yeah. uh, and grow that capital uh, yeah. and stick with it to stick with it that's basically yeah. yeah i think that's the again it's like the psychological barriers or the other or the the hardest things uh as an investor is just getting over your own emotions and neuroses and uh you know panic yeah. but uh yeah like you kind of mentioned at the beginning of this episode you know we've seen market crashes corrections we're going to see more in the future we don't mm-hmm. know when they're going to happen but uh if you're just a long-term investor, which, you know, I feel like that's the, the best way to invest, it's all going to come out, you know, good in the end. So just stick with it. Yeah. And they always feel like they're, it's the end of the world when you're in the middle oh of the my crash. Gosh. But, Literally, uh, that's exactly what it felt like last time. I've been through a few now. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the end of the world. Don't, you it know, it's, it's not the end of the world, guys. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. It was a pleasure having you. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Jessica. And that was episode 304 with Michael Kovacs of Harvest Portfolios. Uh, you can find more information about, you know, lots of the things that we talked about, the specific ETFs uh, that Harvest offers, and also some of the free resources that Harvest also provides at harvestetfs.com. You can follow them on Twitter at harvestetfs and also on Instagram at harvestetfs. Um, and like I mentioned, you know, they've got a ton of free resources, some really great in-depth blog posts. They also have a monthly newsletter and a product interactive booklet. But also what I love uh, as a podcaster is they also have a podcast. It's called Harvest Talks Podcasts. You can find it on any podcast platform, but you can also just find it at harvestportfolios.com slash 
podcasts. So uh, that is it for me for this week. Thanks so much for joining me for this special bonus episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I will, of course, be back next Wednesday for a fresh new episode of the podcast. If you're curious, what is it going to be on? Well, actually, very exciting. Um, it is a episode that I did in person. I like actually had a real life person the guest <laughs> uh, at my house to do the interview. I have not done an in-person interview. Goodness, years. It's been absolute years, literally even years before the pandemic. I just, I've, I do everything pretty much virtually because it just makes more sense. Um, but in this case, it actually made more sense for her just to come over. And so uh, you'll have to find out. I'll just tell you who it is. <laughs> Um, I have Ardell Harrison on the show. We do a, a deep dive uh, about uh, first managing your money. If you're single, I get a lot of questions about what does it mean to, you know, single finances? Like, is it possible for me to achieve some of these things like uh, owning property or investing in real estate or retiring early if I'm single? And while she is uh, a testament to that, because yes, she, she was able to do all of them. And so she shares her journey and also she has a book. So I will be giving away a copy of her book uh, next week as well. So uh, that is it for me. Thank you so much for listening. A big shout out to my podcast editor, Matt Rideout. I will see you back here next Wednesday. See you then. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.